Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching in Clubland, we speak to Greg Chappell. There's little doubt that Greg Chappell is one of the most accomplished cricketers Australia's ever produced. While he was a run machine, he batted with a touch of elegance and grace that few have seen before or since. The second of three brothers to play for Australia, Greg made 7,110 runs in 87 test matches at the superb average of 53.86 to go with his 24 test centuries, and also averaged over 40 in one-day cricket for good measure as well. He was the first player to manage the feat of scoring a century in both his first and last test matches, and as captain, he won 21 of his 48 test matches and lost only 13. He was equally productive in the breakaway World Series cricket years, averaging 54 and 14 super tests that saw some of the fiercest cricket that Greg had encountered. In 1973, Greg was named the Wisden Cricketer of the Year, and in 2000, he was named the Australian Test Team of the Century. Greg was inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame in 2002. After retiring in 1984, Greg has since fulfilled a number of roles including as a national selector over two stints, the national talent manager for Cricket Australia, and a television and radio commentator. In terms of coaching, he coached the South Australian Redbacks from 1998 for five seasons, before taking on the role of Indian coach from 2005 to 2007, in what was a tumultuous period for Greg, in working alongside combative former Indian skipper Surav Ganguly. Greg has also recently released a book titled Greg Chapel Not Out, where he dissects Australian cricket and his career from all angles, including mental skills and the future of the game in this country. It's well worth a read. In our chat with Greg, we talk about his philosophy on stretching young talent, his turbulent experiences when coaching India, and his thoughts on improving the structure of Australian cricket. This episode is proudly brought to you by Big Dog Clothing. For high-quality sports apparel and lifestyle clothing, visit www.bigdog.com.au to view their range. That's dog with a double G. And for listeners who follow both Big Dog Clothing and our podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, if you share a post, story, or retweet a podcast episode, you'll go into the running for a weekly $30 voucher. Entries close Tuesday, 5 p.m. each week. Okay, legends, let's get stuck into the episode. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Greg Chapel. Hi, Mitch. Nice to be with you. Greg, it's wonderful to have you on. It's almost 51 years to the day since you made your debut against the, the Poms in Perth, and you made a century on debut, so... Sure, that brings back fond memories, and we're two days out from the Ashes uh, getting underway. But before we get into some Ashes conversation and definitely some conversation around coaching, where do we find you at the moment, and what's your current involvement in cricket? Uh, I'm in Brisbane, so I'm just maybe ten minutes down the road from the Gabba, so I'll be uh, ready to go at the start of the series. So looking forward to uh, some good cricket. Hopefully, the weather holds up. It's been pretty damp so far in uh, Brisbane this summer, so we can only hope that it improves over the, the five days of the Test match and we get to see some some good cricket. My involvement with cricket these days is pretty much limited to some work I do with my old school in Adelaide, Prince Alfred College, where I'm involved with their cricket program, get down there four or five times a year and spend time with the coaches and the, the players from all levels, from the preparatory school all the way through to the senior school. And in terms of working with younger players, I think we can make a connection there to 
your own formative years. So can you, can you talk about some of the coaching that you received during your youth? And obviously your, your father, Martin, was a prominent grade cricketer as well. Can you talk about the backyard battles that you and your brothers experienced and uh, I guess the initial foray into the game for you? Yeah, well, Dad was a keen cricketer. He was a keen sportsman. He played, represented South Australia at baseball. He uh, played AFL football and he played cricket, obviously, to a, to a good level. He was in the state squad for a number of years. He was probably 19 when the Second World War broke out, so he missed a, a fair chunk of his playing career. And I, I got the impression, looking back more than at the time, that there was a bit of frustration from his side that he perhaps hadn't gone a bit further with his cricket. So he was going to make sure that the three of us had every opportunity. And we were lucky that he was a very keen observer of cricket. Sadly, he passed away before I started coaching. I would love to have sat down with him and just got to understand what he really understood when he was coaching us because uh, he must have understood a fair bit because he, he got so much right you know, and it couldn't have been by accident. So he was a good judge of, of cricket. My probably earliest memories would be around three years of age um, with dad throwing balls to us. He reckons, uh, a story that I've seen, he, he started teaching us to catch from around about two years of age. Right. But what he learned was when he stood in front of us and threw the ball, we looked at him. So what he did was very clever. He got us to stand and he threw the ball against the wall. So we actually had to watch the, watch the ball. And so we had bats and balls in our hand from pretty much as soon as we could walk. He was smart enough to know that a father probably isn't the best coach always. And uh, he had a friend of his, Lynn Fuller, who lived not far from us. Uh, Lynn was a retired farmer from uh, down the southeast of, uh, of South Australia. Lynn had played a lot of club cricket and had also been a very keen observer of the game. So Dad, you know, encourages, I think the, the two things that really stand out for me, firstly, I remember vividly that he taught me, and I'm sure he taught Ian and Trevor, that we had a bat in our hand for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to score runs. Uh, he always insisted we play with a hard ball. So um, our backyard cricket, whether it was him throwing balls or our test matches in the backyard, were always played with a, with a hard ball. Uh, he didn't give us any pads and gloves to play with initially. So the theory behind that was if you learnt to use your bat properly, you wouldn't need pads and gloves. Mm. And the other point that I think was really important with all three of us was that he told us what he wanted us to do, not how to do it. So that each of us developed our own game, which suited our personality, suited our build. And then Mr Fuller on Sunday mornings from the age of five, Ian started going and then at five years of age, Sadly, I'd broken my arm just before I turned five, so I had to wait for about a three to four weeks, which were probably three or four of the most frustrating <laughs> weeks of my early life because I wanted to be around at Mr Fuller's. It wasn't just us. Any kids in the district that were keen could come there on a Sunday morning and Mr Fuller would throw balls. He had a couple of nets in the backyard. Uh, being a good farmer, he, uh, he had it all set up. Uh, and it was Really good pitches, you know, hard bouncy pitches which was was good because we had the ball coming onto the bat and bouncing a bit so we could play shots all around the the wicket lynn tended to focus on you know defensive techniques he thought batting uh, was based on a sound defense but fortunately for me uh, well i'm sure for all of us but as soon as i finished in the net with lynn fuller Dad would get me in the next net and he would throw half volleys, full tosses, half trackers, wide balls and teach me to hit the ball and, you know, look to, look to score runs. Ian probably went 
maybe up till the age of 16, uh, but Mr. Fuller retired before I got that far. So I was probably only 10 or 11 by the time we finished those Sunday morning sessions. But the real learning, you know, the basics, you know, Dad created a great environment and gave us some really good basic instruction. But the real lessons on reflection were the lessons that I learned in the backyard playing against Ian, first of all. Uh, Ian's five years older, so quite a bit bigger and stronger for most of that time. He didn't take into consideration that I was five years younger. He treated me as a as an equal, <laughs> which was good and bad. Probably more bad at the time because I didn't win too many of those yeah. test matches in the backyard. But what I learned was to compete and you know some resilience. I learned to hang in there and you know fight hard for my runs and try and just hang in the the game as as long as I could. Ian eventually left home and I. You know, all of our test matches were Ashes test matches. So I actually represented England in test cricket long before I represented <laughs> Australia because Ian was always Australia and I had to be England. But when Ian left, I became Australia and Trevor became England. <laughs> and then I learned to win because uh, I was nearly four and a bit years yeah. older than Trevor. So uh, I had an advantage on him and that's where I learned uh, learned to win. Uh, they were pretty willing test matches. The, the beauty of it on reflection is that we were learning and making decisions in real time. Um, you know, we were playing real test matches. In our mind, they were real test matches. So we were making decisions in real time. And what I know now is that the best players are the best decision makers. And what sadly we've done, you know, as the game has got more professional, in our era where it was very much a pastime when, when I started, we spent most of our time playing games, either those pickup games in the backyard or we were playing when we got a bit bored with the backyard, we'd go around to the local park and we'd play there and there'd be other kids there. And then there was another park sort of closer to the beach from, from where we lived where we knew there were other kids. So, you know, we could sort of go down there. So we were getting different types of games, you know, one-on-one to start with, with a hardball. Hardball around the corner at the, at the at the first park, but the other park we tended to play with whatever was available, and so we got a variety of bounce, we got a variety of behaviour of the ball, and then in the summer when it got really hot, we were only a kilometre from the beach, so then we would take the games down to the beach, and we would play on the on the wet sand, and then we'd play on the dry sand, and we'd have fielders all around the bat on the dry sand, so it was like a spinning wicket, yeah. Whereas on the on the wet sand, it was skidding and uh, more like a quicker uh, sort of wicket. So we got a pretty good variety of, of games without much interference from parents and without in much interference from coaches. And so we learnt our own game and, and we learnt to think for ourselves. We learnt to reflect on what was working and what wasn't working. And uh, the thing that I noticed when I went back to coaching, and we'll probably come to that a bit more later on, but, yeah. you know, was that, it had changed enormously, whereas we spent probably 80% of our game, you know, time in games, either pick-up games or organised games, and very little time in the nets. And all of a sudden, over a period of, you know, 30 or 40 years, the game had spun the other way where youngsters were spending probably 80% of their time in the nets and less time playing games. And, and I think that makes a significant difference. There's some interesting comparisons there between Lynn Fuller's sort of coaching methodology versus your father, Martin. Lynn obviously having the more technical mindset and Martin being more facilitator of, of, you know, batsmanship and aggressive play. And I think the other interesting point there around unorganized cricket, I think as a school teacher, 
I see very few kids in the yard playing cricket and, you know, around the street, there's, there's very few unorganized sort of pickup games, as you, as you suggest, and almost Steve Smith's the last backyard cricketer that we've produced. And I wonder what that's going to look like going forward around, you know, youngsters having opportunities to, to make decisions and fast track some of that experience as well. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point you make just talking about school. I mean, that was the other thing. Every morning before school, we, we would get to school an hour or more before school and we'd play cricket. Mm. Um, there was a big tree at, on the edge of the, the school oval and that was our wicket. And it was gets out, goes in. If you couldn't yep. get someone out or take a catch, you couldn't get a hit. So it was pretty competitive. There might have been 50 or more kids playing these right. games. So, And then lunchtime was all cricket. Yeah. Uh, I remember our grade five teacher was a female and she wasn't happy that we'd all come in hot and sweaty after <laughs> after lunch, but that's what we did. So almost every spare moment was was spent in the cricket season with cricket, footy season with footy or baseball. We played a lot of baseball as well. And, yeah, we, we've got three grown-up children and, you know, our two boys probably spent less than 50% of the time outdoors that we spent. Mm-hmm. because there were more options available yeah. to them and, and now our grandkids are probably going to spend a lot less time outdoors than, than their parents did. So, again, because there's a lot more competition and option available to, to young people and certainly for the hand-eye sp- sports, I, I think that makes a, a difference. We, you know, we've got an 11-month-old grandson in Adelaide with our youngest son and already Jonathan's rolling the ball to him and he's picking it up and throwing it Right Excellent. and left-handed, depending yeah. which side it goes. So at least you know he he's going to get that option. I remember when our when Jonathan, our youngest son, was in about year five at the local primary school. The headmaster sent out a a, a form to ask parents, you know, what skills they had. I think only one form went out. He really sent it to me. I reckon because he wanted me to tick the box, which I sort of felt obliged to do. And <laughs> then he asked me to come and teach the year five kids to play cricket, and right. we started it a 12-week program and and this sort of was nearly the start of my coaching career I suppose and and it really um, formulated some of my opinions around coaching because it was about 10 or 15 minutes into that first week of coaching cricket for the year fives and uh, I stopped the the session the headmaster was standing over on the side and the, the class teacher was there and I called them over and said look this is not going to work um, these kids don't have enough skills to learn how to play cricket I'll run a skills program this year and then we'll we'll try and teach cricket next year. So we ran a, just a multi-sport uh, program for 12 weeks and just taught them the basics of catching, throwing, you know, running and catching, hitting, kicking, uh, just some basic skills, even passing the ball. It became the, the foundation of a program that um, we then, with my younger brother Trevor and another business partner, we ran in Sydney for a number of years at primary schools called Skills for Life, which was sort of the, the, the next iteration of, of that program that I ran at that primary school for that year. But, um, you know, that, that's one of the issues. I didn't realise that other kids didn't have, you know, balls and bats around the place to play with when they were younger, you know, because our kids did and, you know, they could all catch and throw and hit and run and do all those things. And I was appalled at this year five group at how few of them uh, could actually catch a ball or throw a ball. So we, you know, we stood around, we had the kids lined up around the, the cement centre wicket, just bouncing the ball and catching it. It was yep. as basic as that. They were the sort of skills that we had to, you know, help these kids develop before we could even think about teaching them to play cricket. 
it's it's a massive eye opener um, having the chance to work with young kids every day. I, I share those sentiments. It's it is cause for concern, and even I, you know, in terms of my coaching role at Yarraville Club, I get to work with you know kids that are sort of fourteen to eighteen, and even their ability to throw 40, 50 meters is is poor catching, yeah. and that's deteriorated over over time. So I think we need to be a little bit careful about how we we set up these programs and implement uh, some basic fundamentals around striking, catching, throwing, because they're just the core of yeah. most most sports, aren't they? Now moving moving forward to your own playing career and just touching on I guess the leadership component where you captain the Australian team for forty eight tests and uh, for twenty one wins there and. I guess before you uh, you retired from your playing career there in '84, um, you had Bob Simpson installed as coach in '86. But looking back, with the likes of yourself, Kim Hughes, and your brother Ian, have benefited from having a regular coach or an extra sounding board to support your running of the team. Perhaps in some ways, um, it would depend on on the individual and um, yeah their their attitude to the the role. Yeah, having gone on and coached at the at the highest level. Yeah, what I learned was that the coach's role and the coach's position is as head of the support staff. Now, I don't believe that the the head coach in in cricket should be the boss. People have tried to explain to me that it happens in every other sport. And why would it be any different in cricket? Well, cricket's different. There's not many sports where the game goes for five days. There's not many sports where the the playing day in a test match is six hours with you know, with two breaks in it. Yeah, you know, the captain is the only one who's out on the field with the players when they're in the field and when the action is happening. I know when I started coaching, apart from the fact that I had been with the team in the preparation, the lead up to the game, once the game started and they were out in the middle, I was no better placed than the fellow in row 20. Other than maybe I knew a bit more about the individuals and I knew you know enough about the game to be able to read what was going on. But as a coach, I always felt that I needed somebody on the field who I could speak with when they came off before I spoke to the captain. And the best person usually was a wicketkeeper. And yeah. I know when I first started with South Australia, that was Tim Nielsen. And yeah, before I spoke to Darren Lehman, when the team came off the field, I'd sit down with Tim just to understand whether what I thought was happening was really happening. Because, you know, I couldn't look into the players' eyes. I couldn't look into the opposition's eyes. I couldn't hear the conversations that were going on out on the field. So there was a bit of a gap in, in the knowledge. And I felt, therefore, you know, I was much better placed once I'd spoken to Tim. Uh, when I was with India, it was um, MS Dhoni was the, the guy that I spoke to. And, you know, it, it, was, very, it was very helpful. So depends who you had in the dressing room with you as a, as a coach. You know, it's little understood that there was a lot of coaching went on in our era. We just didn't have a formalised coach. Yep. But if I was having a problem with Andy Roberts as a batsman, I was, you know, if I was worried by Andy Roberts, the best blokes to talk to were the guys in my team who were also batting against Andy Roberts, particularly the better players in, in the team. So you would sit down and discuss with Ian or Doug Walters or you know, whoever else was in the side at the time about, well, how are you dealing with this? I know when um, my first series you talked about uh, 51 years has gone pretty quickly. It doesn't <laughs> feel like that on one level, but it feels a lot longer in other levels. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we had a lot of trouble as a team. We had a lot of trouble with John Snow. Yeah, John was a skiddy sort of bowler. You know, he had a very strong arm action, almost loped into bowl, but a really quick arm action, very strong shoulder action. And he bowled a really good bouncer, which 
he never wasted. You know, they weren't going over your head. They weren't going down the offside or the leg side. They were all coming up under the armpit. And it was really difficult because it was hard to get under them because they were tending to skid. You could occasionally, you know, avoid one, but you basically had to stand and play. The problem with that was that if you got caught with your hands in tight to your body, you had no way to go. Mm. And a number of us got out, caught at bat pad with yeah. balls that really got up under the armpit. And, you know, we were sort of forced to hit them virtually where the, the leg side fielder was. At the end of that series, Ian had left home. He was married by that stage and was living separately from us. And so where he lived just over the road was a, a school that had a practice area with some cement pitches. So at the end of that summer, we decided that we needed to find a way to deal with that short ball. So we went into that school, into the uh, the practice wicket area of cement wickets, and with a bag of baseballs because cricket balls on cement don't bounce properly. They skid mm. even more than snowy skidded. Yeah. But the, the baseball ten, tended to bounce a little bit better. So luckily we played baseball and so we had a bag of balls available to us. And for about six weeks, we went into the nets and we tried to kill each other from about 15 yards, throwing balls as hard as we could to find a way to deal with it. Yeah. And it wasn't a coach telling us how to do it. We had to develop our own way. And, you know, Ian developed his method. I developed my method. And that stood me in good stead for the rest of my, my career, particularly when the West Indians came on the scene, because you had to find a way to clear your arm. If you got caught with your arms in tight to your body, you had nowhere to go. Fending off, yeah. But if you could make room for yourself, so, you know, footwork is nothing more than going from one position to a more optimal position for that particular delivery. And what I found was that where possible, with anything that pitched short, I had to keep it on the leg side of me. So I had to get to the offside of that ball. So not only go back, but I had to go across towards off stump to give myself room. Firstly, so if I missed it, it missed me, but it allowed me to clear my arms. I could take it early. I could let it come a bit longer or I could keep swiveling and hit it a bit finer. And once I understood that, I never had problems with a short ball ever again. So anyone who tells you that we didn't have coaching is didn't, didn't understand what was going on. We probably had the best coaching available to us because it was people who actually spent time out in the middle against the same bowlers. You know, I think there's no doubt that having somebody to deal with a lot of the off-the-field activities would have been very helpful. I don't think it would have helped me. I don't think it would have helped Ian. Uh, I can't answer for Kim as far as what went on on the field because we'd had a really good grounding in, in cricket through our father and Lynn Fuller, and but our father most particularly. And that never was never a problem from my point of view. And I don't think Ian had a problem with it either. So the only advantage, probably after World Series cricket, it would have been helpful because the job had changed exponentially after, after World Series cricket, not least of all in relation to the media. And so when I finished playing, uh, having learnt what I'd learnt, probably the hard way in, in some ways, uh, I, I went on the board uh, for a period, and that was when Bob Simpson was uh, was appointed as uh, to the Australian team. And not many people would remember or even probably know, but one of the things that I insisted when he was appointed that he wasn't called the coach. Okay. He was actually appointed as the cricket manager so that he managed stuff off the field and Alan 
was to captain the team on the field. Uh, when Bob had his contract renewed a few years later, he insisted on the name change. And I, I really think that that was when things went wrong because you know, I think the cricket manager role was the right role uh, and the right title because it is a management role. It's, um, it has coaching. But when you look at the coach, the head coach's role today, he's got batting skill coaches, bowling skill coaches, fielding coaches, sports psychs, physios, doctors, whatever, mm. yeah, whatever else skill coaches he needs. So the, the head coach doesn't do a lot of coaching as such. So it's more of a managerial role than it is a, a coaching role. And I think we would probably have less problems if, in fact, that was the way the role was looked at. It's almost your assistant coaches or specialist coaches do far more coaching than the actual coach him or, him or herself. So very much like the baseball role, you know, in America, the the, the head man is the the manager. Yeah, and he's got his skilled coaches who do, does the coaching. The, the manager does the the strategic stuff and the selecting role. But bear in mind that he's in charge of a club, mm. so he's got all of his players in front of him all the time. You know, the head coach of the Australian cricket team has only got about. 10% of the current first-class cricketers is in his sight. So, you know, he's not even seeing most of the, the first-class players that are around the place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an opinion that I have. It's one that, you know, I'd be hard-pressed to be convinced otherwise. The captain has to be the, the head man in a cricket team because once the team goes on the field, he's the one that's got to make the decisions. And if he's not making decisions... And he hasn't learned to make decisions. Then you know where is he? You know how is he doing the job? And you touched on your time with South Australia, there where Darren Lean was captain, and and you conversing with Tim Nilsson after a, a break or or the the day's play there. So you, you coached the, the Redbacks from the late nineties for five years there. But South Australian cricket sort of struggled for the last few decades. So and, and even commissioned Mike Hussey to conduct an external review as well. So what were some of the challenges that you encountered during that time, and are they still lingering? Well, South Australia struggled for 130 years. You know, let's not mess around. Um, you know, South Australia has won, I think, uh, has won the Sheffield Shield about 12 or 13 times. But it's been, those 13 have been won in clumps of two and three at a time, yep. three and four at a time. You know, they get a good team, usually with a strong leader, and they win it a few times, and then they go for a decade or more. And this has always been the case. You know, South Australia as with you know, most of the, the smaller states, struggle with the, the amount of ability, you know, the, the number of players that they've got to, to pick from. And you know, South Australia, a lot of the success that South Australia has had has been based on the back of international players and players who've come from other states. You know, I, I can remember my first Sheffield Shield captain in South Australia was Les Fabel, and Les had come from New South Wales. Mm. Yeah, you know, there've been any number of interstate players, you know, interstate captains. Um, Jamie Siddons was another one who, you know, had periods of success. You know, Ian and our grandfather are probably the two local-born captains that have had most success for for South Australia. Yeah, you know, when I was coaching in South Australia, you know, I, along with Harvey Jolly, who was their high-performance manager at South Australian cricket at the time, you know, we put a proposal to to the SACA to restructure cricket in in South Australia there are too many club sides you know Michael Hussey's come along you know 20 years later and he's come to them gone back to them with the same proposals that okay. we put to them 20 years before I mean it's all very well having these reviews but you've got to listen to them and start taking some notice of what what people are saying and you know so at different points South Australia has done some good things you know they had 
they had a senior Colts team playing in first grade cricket in Adelaide for a number of years. So the best young kids sort of coming out of school, 18, 19, 20 years of age, they weren't batting at number six or seven for their club side. They were going to the senior Colts and batting at number three and number four and opening the bowling. And they had a senior player who captained the side. But the young blokes were getting opportunities to actually take on serious leadership roles in in the team. And it really accelerated their growth. And when I look at that side that, you know, Ian played in in the senior Colts, there were fellas like uh, Eric Freeman, Ken Cunningham, uh, John Corsby, David Sincock. Yeah, they went on to form the the bulk or the the, um, core of a very successful South Australian team for for many years, which did win a number of uh, Sheffield Shields. But they ignore the they ignore the things that work and tend to focus on the things that don't work. And, you know, unless South Australia does something drastic, uh, it's very hard to get access to players now in the professional era to get players from interstate. You can get players from interstate, but you're not getting the, you know, the, the key players from interstate. You're getting fringe players. And, you know, some of them have been quite, you know, good, good cricketers. But, you know, I think South Australia's got uh, 14 teams in in Premier Grade cricket at the moment. Uh, you've got too few players spread through too many teams, so it dissipates that talent. You know, Adelaide cricket should have, well, you know, maybe eight teams at, at most in, in Premier Grade cricket. And, you know, it, it should be a divisional setup, and that was the proposal that Harvey Jolly and, and I worked on and yeah, you know, I think it was a it was a good proposal, but it was knocked over by the the clubs because you know the clubs didn't want to disappear or no. fall to, to Division Two. It wasn't a decision that was was made with the interests of South Australian cricket at heart. It was a very self centred view of of cricket in South Australia, and that's why South Australian cricket struggles. And until they do something different, I think they'll have the same result. Having coached Essendon in Victorian Premier Cricket with his 18 clubs is much of the same challenges that we've got where the bottom three or four clubs, the talent is really diluted and they're very much mm. making up the numbers. So there's some similarities there. I just want to touch on, I guess, that Colts experience that you were talking about with the younger fellas getting greater opportunity in game. And in your role as National Talent Manager at CA, you were really a driving force around state second eleven cricket being, you know, a bit younger. I think there was uh, six players having to be under twenty three from memory, and also the cricket Australia eleven in the state one day comp. So, was that sort of the basis and the, I guess, the driving force for you around giving younger players opportunity? And um, are there any success stories around some of those initiatives that you in- introduced at, at CA? Well, I think again, you know, based on my life experience, you know, when I went to as a nineteen year old, I was lucky enough to go and play two years of county cricket, so 19 and 20, turning 21 in my, my second season, uh, to play for Somerset as you know, the inaugural overseas player on immediate registration. Up to that point, you had to spend two, at least two years um, residential qualification, which would have meant missing at least one or two domestic seasons of okay. Australian cricket, which I would never have done. But to get the opportunity to go there and uh, be able to play first-class cricket immediately was a great boon for me it was a real finishing school for me to to play you know six days a week in the first season and seven days a week in the second season that I was there but I, I got to look at professional cricket close up obviously and it took me a little while to understand it felt different 
you know, I couldn't believe that I someone was paying me to travel halfway around the world to play cricket full time. Mm. How good is that? Bad. And for the first first season, it was fantastic. But partway through that season, I, I, something seemed wrong. And I finally worked out what it was. Because we were part-time cricketers in Australia and we, we were weekend warriors, we worked all week and we'd go and play on weekends and the occasional Shield game. And then if you were good enough, you'd go and play some test matches. So our conversations in the dressing room were around how do we score runs faster and how do we get them out quicker? When I got to county cricket, I realised that the conversations were around how do we not get out and how do we stop them scoring? Mm, very true. Totally different mindset. And as I sort of became more aware of my surroundings, I realised that, yeah, everyone else in the dressing room obviously was older than me because as a 19-year-old, not many 19-year-olds were playing first-class cricket in England. So there were a few in their early 20s, there were quite a few in their late 20s, and there were a number in their, in their 30s. A couple of them had played a little bit of test cricket. The rest of them were never going to play test cricket. And again, why partway through the second season I decided that I had to get out of there was that the mindset became very much about how do I keep my contract? I, I've got to make a 1,000 runs or I've got to take 50 wickets. That pretty much seemed to be an automatic extension of the contract. If you got close to that, you, you, know, you might get an extension. And so the mindset was not around how do we win games. It was how do I survive? And again, that mindset was totally frustrating for me because you know, we, I'd grown up in an environment where it was how do we win this game? You know, what do we have to do? How can we accelerate the game or slow the game down to, to suit? These guys weren't interested in the, winning the game didn't enter their mind. It was how can I just survive in, in this environment? None of them were trying to become the best player they could be. And again, that really influenced my thinking around you know, what, what happened in the future. So midway through the second season, I rang my father one Sunday. I used to ring home every Sunday and have a chat to mum and dad and I said to Dad, look, you know, it must have been around July. I said, I'm coming home at the end of August. Keep an eye out for a job because I'm not coming back here. I, I've got out of this what I can get out of it. Now I can feel myself getting into bad mental habits. I need to find a job where I can earn enough money in six months to be able to allow me to play cricket for the other six months. And if I'm good enough, play test cricket. If I'm not, well, then I better find a job that'll yeah. look after me for the rest of my life. So... One of the things, when we started talking about professional cricket in Australia, one of the messages that I kept saying to as many people who would listen, whatever we do, don't import county cricket. If it becomes just turn up and you get paid, mm. then it's going to create some problems that will lead us down the wrong path. Yeah. We have to have a, an Australian professional set up where you, you give, there's a an underpinning amount that is paid, but you earn the rest from performance. If you don't do that, we're going to finish up with a lot of people doing what I saw in county cricket, where they will be hanging on to this job for as long as they can. They won't be trying to get better as, as players. They'll be just trying to hang on and Australian cricket will suffer. And when I went back into the South Australian dressing room as a coach in 98, I got this, I was disappointed to see that I was in a, I was in an environment very similar to the one that I'd experienced at Somerset. And I knew this couldn't be good for Australian cricket. Now, I can understand guys who want to play cricket professionally and they love it and they want to keep doing it as long as they can. No problem with the players doing that, but we have to have a system that turn players over. The, the beauty of the 
part-time system that we had was that it was continually cleaning itself. If you weren't playing for Australia by the time you were sort of 26, 25, probably 25, 26, mm. you better think about what other career you've got because cricket's not going to carry you very far. It's not going to pay you very much. And I remember just when I was coaching South Australia, I, I came around the back of the Bradman stand one day and walked into Sir Donald Bradman coming out of the Sacker offices. He'd been in to sign some bats and things that had been sent from around the world. And it was probably only a year or so before he passed away. And I used to see him from time to time. And I'd often, you know, say good morning, Sir Donald, and, you know, good morning, Greg. And he'd jump in his car and off he'd go. Anyway, this day I realised after about 10 or 15 minutes, he wasn't rushing off. So I thought I'd ask him some of the questions that I'd always wanted to ask. And one of those questions is, why did you resist so strongly better conditions for the players? Mm. And he said, because, Greg, when sport becomes a business, it loses something. And, you know, I, I knew then he was right. And I know even more now that he, he was right. He didn't quite answer the question that I was, was asking. Yep. But the comment that he made fitted very much my experience, that as the game gets more professional, people become more conservative and the flow of young talent gets halted. And what, and again, some of my uh, family experience, you know, the three boys, Ian, Tre Trevor and myself, we all went to Prince Alfred College in, in Adelaide. We were very lucky. It was a good school, good cricket school. Chester Bennett was the coach, very good schoolboy coach, very good coach, period. And for many years, Prince Alfred College, St. Peter's College and Adelaide Boys High School, first 11 cricket was in the men's B grade. You know, we played B grade cricket. So I got into the first 11 as a 14-year-old and I was playing men's B grade cricket. Now, it was at an era when they were trying to cut out throwing in first grade cricket, but they were letting them play B grade cricket. So we had a lot of blokes running in and chucking it <laughs> at that age. So right. there were some blokes who were pretty quick. So... The development, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't make a mountain of runs at school because I was playing against men for, once I got in, in first grade, except the last year at school, they put us all back into students' grade cricket because it wasn't right to have elitism in, in sport. So that was the start of the decline in many ways. And so we played, I played a year of students' grade cricket and Ashley Woodcock was my opening partner at school, actually went on and played a test match for Australia. We made a mountain of runs in, uh, in students' grade, which we hadn't been making in, in men's B grade. But so then by the time Trevor got to Prince Alfred College, the first 11 was playing in the students' grade and he made a mountain of runs at school. Yeah, he played five years of, of first 11 cricket. Yeah. But what people didn't understand, and, you know, I, you know, Chester Bennett made a comment that, you know, Trevor was the, the best of the three of us at, at school as a batsman. Well, that, that missed the point. I mean, he probably as much as anyone should have realised that there was a huge difference between the runs that Ian and I made at school to the runs Trevor made. So Trevor was held at a level at which he was already competent for about three years too long. Right. And the worst thing you can do for talent is to keep it at a level at which it's already competent for too long because it goes stale and you miss out on the development opportunities that you need at that point. So back in whatever year it was, 2010 maybe, uh, when we were looking at all of our pathway cricket, what we realised was that two things, guys were coming out of the under-19 program and were disappearing into the ether. Mm. They were going back to club cricket and most of them were never being seen again. And so they weren't getting the challenges that, that they needed. The other thing that we, we found when we did a review of 
the contract players list was that there were, from memory, three or at most five players under 25 on the state contract list. That was a huge red flag for me. This was a problem for Australian cricket. If it was taking four or five years to get players through from the under-19 program to first-class cricket, they were missing development opportunities that they needed. And the point is, when you miss those opportunities, you may never get them again. Or even if you get that opportunity three years later, it's too late. You know, Graham Hick is probably a very good example mm-hmm. of someone who could have played test cricket as a 21-year-old or maybe even a 20-year-old. But he had to spend seven years in county cricket before he played test cricket. Now, Graham made a mountain of runs in, in county cricket because he was good enough. And he was good enough to avoid probably the one good bowler in the opposition team, get down the other end and make mincemeat of the the rest of the bowlers. But when he got to test cricket, there was no other end. Down the other end, you had another good bowler. Mm. And, you know, I I have no doubt, and I know Graham well, and we we have discussed this, you know, that had he played as a 21-year-old, his international career may have worked out very differently because he would have been forced to deal with that short ball that Ian and I had to, you know, work out very early in our in our careers. So we tried to coerce the states into picking younger players. But the knot in the system in Australian cricket is coaches at the first-class level who want to keep their job. Now, I don't blame them for wanting to keep their job, but invariably they will pick experience over potential. And that was what was happening at that time in Australian cricket, that we had a lot of good young cricketers who just weren't getting the challenges that they needed. So... When we left it up to the states to do the right thing, they didn't do the right thing. Right. They did yeah. the right thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the coach wanted to keep his job, so he wanted to win. So we found that we had to introduce some legislation to restrict the number of over 25-year-old players, and it worked quite well. And after a few years, when you looked at the state contract list, there were you know three or four or five under 25-year-old cricketers on every state's list. That was the future of Australian cricket right there. Mm. And taking me, you know, going back to that experience in England, when I looked around the dressing room at Somerset, then I started looking around the dressing rooms of the other teams that I played. You'd see two or three players who'd already played for England and either had finished their careers or weren't good enough. You had another two or three players who were never going to be good enough. And you might have one player in each team who was a potential future test cricketer, but they had 17 counties. We had six states, yeah. so yeah. we couldn't afford to just have six players of potential of being the champions of, of the future. And so it, it was a it was a battle. Um, it was a battle we had to have. And I, I, you know, I can't off the top of my head think of a whole list of players, but there is no doubt that some players who've gone on, like the Labuschagne of this world, even the Steve Smiths of this world. I mean, I was a selector at the time that Steve got selected to play for Australia. He wasn't making a lot of runs in Sheffield Shield cricket. He was doing okay, Mm. but he wasn't absolutely bashing the door down. But you could see that he was going to be a champion of the future. Manus Labuschagne, when he came along, he wasn't making a lot of runs for Queensland, but you could see that he had the makings of, of something that was better than average. And that's one of the arts of selection is to recognize someone who's got a lot of growth in them not someone who, you know, maybe has already reached his peak, but you've got to get them there sooner rather than later. And this is the same all the way down the chain, that you've got to play them at, at the highest level they can cope with that won't do damage. Yeah. 
because if they don't get that stretch opportunity, they may not become the player that, that they'll become. You know, Cameron Green, you know, we were railing at, um, at Justin Langer, who was coaching Western Australia at the time, but this kid is the best batsman, best young batsman in Australia. Mm. Western Australia thought he was a bowler. Right. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we had to scream at them to yeah. don't make him bowl because you'll break him down and he'll, he'll miss the, the batting opportunities. It happened to um, Pat Cummins. He broke down early in his career and he missed 18 months of not only bowling opportunities, but he missed 18 months of batting opportunities. Yeah. Paddy was the best batsman as well as the best bowler in the 2012 under-19 cohort. But because he missed out on that so much cricket at that stage, you know, he missed on eight, out on 18 months of batting development. He's still a very handy tail ender, yes. but he, he could have been a genuine all-rounder. And they, these are the things that you, you have to be aware of in, in a system like ours that if you're not giving opportunities, it's better to give an opportunity or two too many than to miss a champion player. Yeah. You know, Ricky Ponting was playing first-class cricket at you know, 18, probably 17 years of age, you know, playing first-grade cricket as a 14 or 15-year-old. Precocious talent needs to be forced through the, through the system. And uh, you know, occasionally you'll make mistakes with it, but more often than not, You'll you'll get you know success that um, that brings back big rewards. No, stretching young talent is such an important aspect of of development, and even related to my own context at the moment, we've got a twelve year old left arm orthodox who's playing in our seconds, and he's a, he's an amazing talent. He's, he's represented Victorian underage cricket already, and uh, he's one that we want to push through. And he's he's holding his own just well enough at the moment, and he's one that's really exciting for the future. So. Yeah, well, I think that good on you for for doing it and recognizing it because his development will benefit from that. You know, so then the next thing is you just have to keep an eye on him to make sure when if he runs into a period where he's struggling a bit, get him out of there and mm. give him an opportunity to recover and yeah. and reflect and good coaching. You know, work work with him to uh, you know to to get him to go to that next level. I mean, every one of our the best batsmen of every era, including Sir Donald Bradman got picked as youngsters to play test cricket and they all got dropped early in their career. Now that didn't mean that there was a mistake playing them earlier. It just meant that they'd had an opportunity to have a look at what was happening, go away and reflect on what you've learned and what you need to do to become the player you should be and come back. And every one of them has come back and gone on and and been a a better cricketer. There's not an exception to to the rule. It's important to get a feel for it, have it, have a taste. And then uh, it certainly makes those younger players hungrier to come back again and, and Greg, you've recently recently released a book, Greg Chapel Not Out, which of course is available in all good bookstores. And we've spoken about, I guess, the Australian system being uh, we want them to, you know, revert to a leaner, hungrier system that perhaps we've we've uh, shifted from. Are there any other things that, I guess, from Australian cricket standpoint, we need to tidy up in order to be uh, number one in all three formats? It's probably never been harder to to become a, a good batsman than it is in the current environment of three formats and broken summers of domestic cricket. Yeah. Now I look at a fellow like Nick Maddinson. You know, when Nick came out of the um, Australian under-19 team, he must have been in the 2010 quartet uh, cohort, I think. Very good young cricketer, more than useful left-arm spin bowler, good batsman, brilliant fielder. But he, he's one that, I, you know, I, I reckon early in his career, he two or three times he started the domestic first-class season with a bang, you know, a couple of hundreds early in the, in the season and then 
after five games, the red ball cricket stopped and Big Bash started. And yeah. and then by the time the back end of the season came around, he'd gone off the boil and yeah. and didn't make a lot of runs. And then you know, next season, he'd come back and do the same thing. So the, the broken summer, I, I think, is, is, is a huge problem. You know, you've got someone like Alex Keith, who was a you know, good cricketer before he decided to pursue football. You know, had Alex had an unbroken run at first-class cricket for a number of seasons, mm. it may have been a very different story for, for him. So we have to find a way to play 10 Sheffield Shield games in a bunch, not break up the season. I can understand that the Big Bash has got to be in the middle of the holiday period and so on. That's fine. And it's been a huge success and it's very popular. Um, so good on it. But, you know, we've, we've got these players on contract for about 10 months of the year. We don't have to play all of our cricket in the middle of the summer. So we, we can play cricket in, you know, the north of Australia, whether it's, you know, Queensland or whether it's Northern Territory or wherever it might be. Yeah, there are any number of opportunities and probably... Possibly in in Perth, you could uh, start a little bit earlier. But anywhere where there's football, it's, it's a problem starting a bit earlier because you haven't got grounds. But we could play first-class cricket in the north of Australia from August, late, late August, and have 10 first-class games running up to the first test. Yep, I like it. Then the selectors have got plenty of talent they've had a good look at mm-hmm. leading up to, to, first, uh, yeah, to the first test match. Yeah, and, and maybe it could even run through the first couple of test matches. Um, you know, Big Bash is just about to start. Yeah. So it could run through to, to this, this period of, uh, of the summer. Then you have your, your test matches uh, played in concert with the Big Bash through the middle of the summer. And then the back end of the summer, we should be having our best under 25 players playing cricket either in Australia at the end of the season or going to somewhere else to, to play cricket. Mm. Every every sort of February, March, April, the best young cricketers in the country should be playing international cricket. You have a look at what happened to India last, last summer. They were almost lucky in a way that their frontline bowlers broke down and they had to replace them late in the series with, with fresh bowlers. Mm. Now, they weren't inexperienced bowlers. You know, Siraj has taken something like 75 wickets for India A before he played a test match. So he'd been playing all around the world on different surfaces, learning how to bowl against better cricketers than he was playing against in first-class cricket. Agarwal, was it, the opening opening batsman, came in and, you know, he'd made 1,500 runs in India A cricket on different surfaces all around around the world. They weren't innocents being thrown to the Lions Mm. um, at the end of the season. They were experienced international cricketers. And... Sadly, you know, it was Raul Dravid on the back of a lot of conversations around under-19 World Cups where he'd been involved with India and I'd been involved with Australia, where we talked about a lot of the, the ways to develop cricketers. And Rahul has had a big impact on Indian cricket in changing their, their development programs, not least of all in making sure that their next generation of test cricketers were playing a lot of international cricket. So at you know, the end of their season, they were picking the best young players and taking them away or playing series in India against visiting teams. And, you know, I've been a proponent of that for about 20 years uh, in Australian cricket, but we're still not doing it. And, yeah, when we send Australia A teams away, there's always an argument, is this a development team or is it our second best team? Mm. From my point of view, it should be a development team. But if you're not going to use Australia A as a development team, then have a an under-25 yeah. team that is your development team. Because, you know, you get a player who's 32 years of age, might have played a few test matches, 
might be sort of a fringe test player. One more tour away is probably not going to change him much as a cricketer. But you get a 21, 22-year-old who's wanting to learn, wanting to run through brick walls and, and play for Australia. Yeah, they're going to take so much out of, out of those opportunities. And if we don't do it, we're going to slip backwards at a million miles an hour. So the two things that we must do, in my opinion, if we think test cricket's important, yep. and I think it should be, then we've got to play more red ball cricket in a bunch and we've got to take our best young cricketers away and play cricket at, at the end of the season. You can play some of after the big bash. You can, you can have your 50-over tournament. And then from that point onwards, get the best young cricketers playing cricket as often and as uh, as much as possible in as varied a conditions as possible. You know, India, obviously, Sri Lanka is a good place to take young cricketers because you get a lot of variety of conditions in, in, in a very small space. You go to Colombo and there's six or eight, you know, really good grounds within 20 minutes drive of the centre yeah. of the city. And they're all slightly different pitch conditions, and every team you play against in Sri Lanka has three or four top-quality spinners. Mm. And it could be, and they're often two of their best batsmen as well. So one of the areas that we've got to get better at is, you know, red ball cricket overall, batting in particular, but batting against spin bowling in subcontinental conditions is something we just don't get enough experience of in Australia. No, I love your thoughts on the fixture. I think uh, probably English cricket's experiencing similar difficulties at the moment with the 100 being introduced as well. But playing our shield cricket in the lead up to the test, you know, August, September, October, November, your BBL over the Christmas holiday period and then finishing off with your 50 over stuff and all development tours. So I think that's definitely a blueprint that we could adopt going forward. And you touched on, I guess, some of those Indian players and you had the, the opportunity to coach India from 2005 to 2007, which... Uh, we had Gary Kirsten on the podcast a few months ago, and he talked about some of the challenges in that role as well. But can you talk about some of the successes you had and also, I guess, the, the philosophy around promotion of young talent and then also, I guess, managing some of Indian cricket's royalty in Tendulkar, Ganguly, Sawag, Harbhajan Singh, and um, whether you would have adjusted anything in, in your approach there with managing that talent? Yeah, it was very interesting. I I hadn't grown up dreaming of being a coach, but I must admit when the opportunity came to coach South Australia, I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I could. I yeah, then got the taste for it and thought I'd love to coach at the, the highest level, but the Australian team uh, was being coached by John Buchanan at that stage and they were doing very well. The opportunity, the likelihood of an opportunity opening up in Australia probably was going to be too late for me. Uh, I'd done some work with Saurabh Ganguly. Saurabh rang me after I'd finished with South Australia and asked if he could come out and spend some time. I was living in Sydney at the time, so he came out and we spent about nine days uh, just working together, using the indoor centre at the Sydney Cricket Ground, uh, just working on his batting. Yeah, we spent a, as much time talking as we did hitting, hitting balls, but yeah. it was about him understanding batting a little bit differently from, from what, he, what he understood it. We had a really good time and it was obviously successful for him because he went back to India and made a lot of runs, which he hadn't been doing. And so he contacted me to see if I was interested in coaching India. And I thought, well, you know, my wife, Judy, had always said, you know, she'd love to live overseas at some stage. You know, I should get a job coaching. She's got a bit of Scottish heritage. She always thought, you know, living in Scotland would be a good thing. I wasn't quite so convinced, <laughs> but I, I rang her one day and said, what about India? And she said, yeah, I'd love that. So um, I thought, well, I was approached at the same time by the West Indies and Sri Lanka. And, you know, I was 
invited to apply and interview for those jobs. And I had the opportunity, I could have uh, accepted either of those opportunities, but I took a bit of a punt and thought, well, if the Indian job comes up, I'd rather do that. Mainly because it was the centre of cricket at that stage. It was the powerhouse. And as you mentioned, you know, some some of the biggest names in, in the game, probably coming to an end, but maybe the best yeah, you know, batting lineup that cricket had ever seen. Incredible, yeah. Some of the most in- incredible talent that yeah. uh, anyone's ever had. But they were coming to to the end of their uh, their run. A lot of the guys were at the, the sort of in the second half of their career. And one thing that I've learned again from my experience in in cricket over the years is that there's no such thing as a finished article in in a cricket team. If you're not trying to get better, you're going backwards because everyone else is getting better. So if you're not continuing to improve, then as far as in comparison to the opposition, you are going backwards. So, you know, I, I knew that it was going to be a challenge on a number of fronts, um, not least of all the, the politics that's involved in any any sport, but cricket in India probably is world champion when it comes to uh, to politics, <laughs> not only within the team, but, you know, just around the team. The pressures that are on everybody and um, everything. So when I got there, and I, you know, I'd had a good look at India before I went there. I'd spoken to John Wright um, about his experience in India, so I had a bit of an idea of what what I was walking into. And you know, I knew it was going to be a challenge, but it was a challenge that um, I was keen to to take on. And I had a two year contract leading into the 20, 2007 uh, World Cup. So. I knew that that had to be a focus. Uh, white ball cricket had to be a focus for us. 2020 cricket hadn't come into um, international cricket at that stage. So we, we put a big focus in the, in the first 12 months on their white ball cricket. And what I realised very quickly was that they sort of, they had their cricket upside down, their, their white ball cricket. They were over attacking with the bat and under attacking with the ball. So that meant that it was boom or bust with the bat. And often, you know, they, they would do well enough to win more than their share of, of games because they had enough talent. Mm. But the big worry was their bowling. They weren't trying to take wickets. They were trying to stop runs. Yeah. And particularly in Indian conditions, but any conditions, particularly around the world now, because wickets for white ball cricket around the world are pretty good yeah. these days. So if you don't take wickets up front with the new ball, you've got a problem. But if you don't take wickets in the middle overs, you've got a serious problem. If they've got wickets in hand in the last 10 overs, you cannot stop them scoring big big runs. So we had to try and work with these guys to understand that we had to change the way they were playing. And it, it was a challenge for us. And it was particularly a challenge because Sarov was the captain. Sarov was struggling with the bat and he was very conservative as a, as a captain. And yeah, we weren't going to change much if the thinking didn't change. So, you know, I worked with Saurabh trying to get him to understand what we were doing. We were also playing test cricket, obviously, and he was struggling in in test cricket as well. And it became pretty obvious that we needed something, we needed a a circuit breaker. And my first tour away with the Indian team was to Sri Lanka and Saurabh was not available because he'd been banned for slow over rates in probably all forms of cricket, but particularly... Mm. um, 50 over cricket because he yeah. spent so long trying to set his fields, yeah. you know, trying to stop people scoring runs rather than trying to take wickets. So he he made the mistake of asking me in Zimbabwe how I thought he was going. And you know, I'd been brought there by the BCCI to, to bring some of the success processes from Australia to, to Indian cricket. 
And one thing that you know, I've always understood is that you know, you're better off telling the truth than beating around the bush. So when Sarah asked me, I said, mate, I think you're struggling. And quite honestly, if you want my opinion, I think the best thing you can do is stand down from the captaincy and let's focus on your batting. I reckon we can resurrect your batting and you've probably got another five years of international cricket in you. But if you hang on to the captaincy, mm. you may well lose them both. Anyway, uh, from that point of time, I became enemy number one. And, um, you know, Sarah decided he was going to hang on to the, the captaincy come hell or high water. Thankfully, the selectors realised that we needed a circuit breaker and uh, he wasn't making the runs that we needed him to do. He wasn't leading in the way that a leader should be leading. And he was dropped from the team. Uh, Rahul Dravid became captain and all of a sudden, the whole atmosphere changed. Firstly, players sat up and take, took notice because, well, if Sarov can go, we're all under pressure. Yeah. So we all of a sudden got them training properly. We started to train specifically for the things that we needed to do. So we trained in context. And that was around white ball cricket, a lot more aggressive with the, the ball, a lot more common sense with the bat. Let's, let's make, make sure we make 300 every time. Well, in fact, I think the number was 280. I think if you made 280 batting, batting first in, in India, you pretty much won about 80% of your games. Okay. Yeah. And if we aim to get 280 and batted really well, we'd probably get 300 and 320. But if we try and get 320, which is what they were doing, mm. they were getting bowled out for 240. Yeah. And that way you were losing maybe 50% or more of the game. So in before I took over with the Indian team, I think in their last 22 one-day internationals, they'd won three out of 22 games batting second. They weren't great at chasing because they tended to panic, and that was led by Sarov largely. So we got the players to buy into the fact that we had to you know, be a lot more sensible with the batting. And I got Rahul Dravid to buy into the fact that if we won the toss, we bat second. Generally, if we lost the toss, we were going to bat second anyway. And so out of the next 22 games batting second, we won 19 of the 22. And that was just by training a bit more sensibly, thinking and strategizing a bit better and picking slightly different bowlers to uh, take wickets in, in the middle overs. It became quite obvious to me that Harbhajan was one of the one of the major problems because Harbhajan had been taught to bowl defensively in 50 over cricket because that's the way they wanted to play. And we just weren't getting those wickets in the middle overs. So for some reason or other, he was untouchable. We we couldn't leave him out of the team, but we picked a fellow called Ramesh Puar, an off spinner from Mumbai, who Slice was the old fashioned <laughs> off spinner. And mate, he was a seriously good bowler. Mm. He was a much better bowler than Harbhajan Singh, I can tell you now. And we won, we beat Pakistan in Pakistan, I think 5-1 in a one-day series on the back of Pawar getting wickets in the middle overs. And he was knocking over good players, Inzamam Al-Haq in particular. I reckon he got Inzamam four or five times. And they were genuine off-spinners wickets. They were bold, LBW, stumped, caught it slip. And, yeah, he, he was a real bonus for us in those middle overs. And it was really exciting because in that 12 months, we had a lot of success. On the test front, what we had to convince them to do was to make a priority of fast bowling. Up to that point, India made a priority of spin bowling, which worked okay in India, mm. but it was never going to win you a test series in Australia or the West Indies or even England, South Africa. You were never going to win you know, a test, map, test series in South Africa with, uh, with spin bowling. So 
we got the selectors to be more aware of fast bowling. We got them to pick 30 of their best fast bowlers and brought them to Bangalore, where the National Cricket Academy was. And we sifted through those bowlers and we found about half a dozen young quicks who had real potential, were sharp, or they had a bit of bounce. And we took two or three of them to the West Indies in 2006, where we won their first series out of India for about 30 years. And while we had them in the West Indies, we got them fitter and stronger and understanding in their roles a bit better. We went to South Africa and we won the first test match that ever won in, in South Africa yeah. because we were all of a sudden picking teams that had a chance to win. And I probably didn't get all of the benefits of the changes that we made. Um, you know, I don't know whether Gary would ever admit it, but I think he probably gained some of the benefits of you know what we'd done in those um, in those two years in just changing the thinking of the selectors, the administrators, and some of the players. You know, uh, sadly, some of the senior players who were at the back end of their career. Again, they just wanted to hang on to their place in the team. They didn't necessarily want to make it, be part of making it the best team in the world. But after two years, it had taken a lot of effort and a lot of uh, energy. And, and I realised that at that point, that whilst the administrators, the board wanted me to continue and they wanted me to continue doing what I was doing, but they weren't prepared to support me publicly. So I, I just didn't think that we were going to be able to achieve what, what we wanted to achieve. So I stepped away from, from that role and took a role in Rajasthan for 18 months, sort of running their cricket academy with a friend of mine, Ian Fraser from Melbourne. And we set up their academy and ran that for 18 months. And, and that was probably one of the most fulfilling 18 months of my coaching career, sort of helping them set up their academy and working with some really good young cricketers in that program. And the young fast bowling, or the fast bowling talent in India is incredible at the moment, Boomerah. Umesh Yadav and uh, Mohammed Siraj and Mohammed Shami as well. They've got a fantastic quartet there and plenty of depth underneath that as well. So that's a, a real legacy of yours, I think, Greg. And I guess in closing, we have the Ashes starting in two days' time. There's been various scandals that both countries have been uh, tarnished with, with the Tim Payne scandal and uh, I guess the, the racism in cricket back in England as well. Uh, but it's time to play some cricket. Can you give us a series prediction and considering, I guess, the limited preparation that both teams have had and perhaps the impact of La Nina with the, with the weather there and uh, perhaps some bowler-friendly conditions, can you see the likes of Robinson, Broad, Anderson and Co perhaps inflicting a bit more damage on the Australian batting than we, than we thought? They'll be a good bowling side, there's no doubt. I, I think both sides are, uh, are very strong in bowling. Um, England a little bit unlucky that um, Archer is is not with them in particular, but they've got you know one or two others that uh, may well have been here. Um, so they probably haven't got the pace that they might have had, um, particularly if they'd had Archer uh, fit. Bowling in Australia and bowling in England is quite different. You know, bowling in England with the uh, Duke's ball in those conditions with a very proud seam, uh, the ball will swing for longer and seam off the pitch a lot more than it will in Australia. The Kookaburra ball doesn't you know, swing for as long as the, the Duke's ball. And the bounce in Australian wickets is very different from England. You know, England bowled really well to Warner in particular. Broad bowled magnificently to, to Warner in England in 2019. Yeah. Came around the wicket and pitched the ball fuller and straighter. They knew that Davies' strengths were square of the wicket on the offside in particular. So bowling over the wicket, right arm over the wicket to Davies was sort of opening up his offside. So they wanted to take that away from him. And if they erred, they would prefer to be down leg side rather than offside. And they pitched it fuller. 
And in England, the ball doesn't go over the stumps too often. You know, if you're pitching it up, it's not not going over the stumps. I mean, I think, I reckon, Davey, I can remember one, maybe two times he got bowled in that series and it was clipping the top of the bales. You know, that was about as as high as the ball gets off, off the length. And he, he really found it hard because there just weren't any get-off strike balls even, let alone, you know, boundary balls. And Broad had a, an absolute purple patch Um I think it'll be harder for him. You know, they'll continue bowling around the wicket. But with extra bounce, Davey's going to get a few more scoring opportunities. So the start of his innings is going to be the, the big challenge. But if he can get away, I, I think David could just as easily have a great summary, subject to, you know, weather conditions improving. Mm. You know, I, I think we've got a little bit more batting depth than England. England are going to rely very much on Root and Stokes to make their, make their impactful runs. Yeah, the other guys will make runs, but I, I don't see any of them hurting us very much. You know, Root and, and, and Stokes are the class batsmen in, that, in their top six. And so they're going to be relied on to make a lot of, lot of runs and regularly. And Root's had a terrific run. You know, he's in the form of his life. He's, you know, how much longer can he keep doing it, particularly if he's not getting support from, from other players? And I think we've got a bit more depth in bowling. You know, I think Robinson will be a handful in, on Australian wickets with his bounce, but he'll need to get the length right if he's going to take wickets. He might be hard to score from if he bowls back of a length, but, you know, unless he's nicking guys off, you know, he's not getting LBWs and bowled if he's bowling back of a length in no. Australia. So I think Lyon, you know, gives us a bit more punch in the spin bowling department. So I think we've got the edge, a little bit more depth in both batting and bowling, playing in home conditions, as long as the, the weather doesn't interfere too much. You know, I, I think it's a comfortable win by Australia, okay. but the first two test matches will be critical because they are the ones that are going to be most likely to be English-type conditions where the ball will swing a bit longer and seam for a bit longer. I think Brisbane and Adelaide will you know, be relatively low-scoring games. And when you're in low-scoring games, one partnership can make the difference or a, you know, one spell of bowling can, mm. can make the difference. So the games are always going to be a lot closer. They're the two danger games for Australia, I think, the first two test matches. If we can get through those well, then I think it's a comfortable win for Australia. Okay, and I, and I think the Australian bowling attack matches up very well against the, the English top order as well with Cummins... Stark and Hazelwood, I think they'll give uh, Hamid, uh, Burns, Milan a real working over. And even even Lyon yeah. of the left-handers in the top five there, Burns, Stokes, Milan, I think Lyon's a pretty big threat against those three as well. Obviously, we, we have to bowl well and, and fitness will, will play its part. But I think we've got the edge going into it. Then it's about who, who plays the best. Well, here's hoping we get off to a good start Wednesday morning in the bag of green there. But Greg, it's been incredible to have a chat to you. You've given me... Uh, an enormous amount of your time this afternoon. I've picked uh, picked your brain about all things coaching and your journey. Uh, what a legacy that you've you've got in Australian cricket and, and global cricket. Thank you so much for your time and thoughts. You've been incredibly generous and take care. Thanks, Mitch, and good luck with your podcast, mate. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, mate. All the best. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching in Clubland. A shout out to the talented Aidan Arandes for putting together our podcast theme song. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Feel free to leave a rating and review. To catch the latest updates from the podcast, check us out on Facebook or on Twitter at Coaching Club Pod. Thanks again and catch you around in Clubland.